Chapter One of Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, 1847 to 1865, by Ward Hill Lamon. Read by John Greenman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, Chapter One Early Acquaintance. When Mr. Lincoln was nominated for the presidency in 1860, a campaign bookmaker asked him to give the prominent features of his life. He replied in the language of Gray's elegy that his life presented nothing but the short and simple annals of the poor. He had, however, a few months previously, written for his friend Jesse W. Fell the following. I was born February 12, 1809, in Hardin County, Kentucky. My parents were both born in Virginia, of undistinguished families second families perhaps i should say my mother who died in my tenth year was of a family of the name of hanks some of whom now reside in adams some others in macon counties illinois my paternal grandfather abraham lincoln emigrated from rockingham county virginia to kentucky about seventeen eighty one or two where a year or two later he was killed by indians not in battle but by stealth when he was laboring to open a farm in the forest his ancestors who were quakers went to virginia from berks county pennsylvania an effort to identify them with the new england family of the same name ended in nothing more definite than a similarity of christian names in both families such as enoch levi mordecai solomon abraham and the like my father at the death of his father was but six years of age and he grew up literally without education he removed from kentucky to what is now spencer county indiana in my eighth year we reached our new home about the time the state came into the union it was a wild region, with many bears and other wild animals still in the woods. There I grew up. There were some schools, so-called, but no qualification was ever required of a teacher beyond readin', writin', and cipherin' to the rule of three. If a straggler supposed to understand Latin happened to sojourn in the neighborhood, he was looked upon as a wizard. There was absolutely nothing to excite ambition for education. Of course, when I came of age, I did not know much. Still, somehow, I could read, write, and cipher to the rule of three. But that was all. I have not been to school since. The little advance I now have upon this store of education I have picked up from time to time under the pressure of necessity. I was raised to farm work, which I continued till I was twenty-two. At twenty-one I came to Illinois, and passed the first year in Macon County. Then I got to New Salem, at that time in Sangamon, now in Menard County, where I remained a year as a sort of clerk in a store. Then came the Black Hawk War, and I was elected a captain of volunteers, 
a success which gave me more pleasure than any I have had since. I went the campaign, was elected, ran for the legislature the same year, 1832, and was beaten, the only time I ever have been beaten by the people. The next and three succeeding biennial elections I was elected to the legislature. I was not a candidate afterwards. During this legislative period I had studied law and removed to Springfield to practice it. In 1846 I was once elected to the lower house of Congress, was not a candidate for re-election. From 1849 to 1854, both inclusive, practiced law more assiduously than ever before. Always a Whig in politics, and generally on the Whig electoral tickets, making active canvases, I was losing interest in politics when the repeal of the Missouri Compromise aroused me again. What I have done since then is pretty well known. If any personal description of me is thought desirable, it may be said I am in height six feet four inches nearly lean in flesh weighing on an average one hundred and eighty pounds dark complexion with coarse black hair and gray eyes no other marks or brands recollected yours very truly a lincoln j w fell esq Washington, D.C., March 20th, 1872. We, the undersigned, hereby certify that the foregoing statement is in the handwriting of Abraham Lincoln, David Davis, Lyman Trumbull, Charles Sumner. Were I to say in this polite age that Abraham Lincoln was born in a condition of life most humble and obscure, and that he was surrounded by circumstances most unfavorable to culture and to the development of that nobility and purity which his wonderful character afterward displayed, it would shock the fastidious and superfine sensibilities of the average reader, would be regarded as prima facie evidence of felonious intent, and would subject me to the charge of being inspired by an antagonistic animus in justice to the truth of history however it must be acknowledged that such are the facts concerning this great man regarding whom nothing should be concealed from public scrutiny either in the surroundings of his birth his youth his manhood or his private and public life and character let all facts concerning him be known and he will appear brighter and purer by the test it may well be said of him that he is probably the only man dead or alive whose true and faithful life could be written and leave the subject more ennobled by the minutiae of the record his faults are but the shadows which his virtues cast it is my purpose in these recollections to give the reader a closer view of the great war president than is afforded by current biographies which deal mainly with the outward phases of his life, and in carrying out this purpose I will endeavor to present that many-sided man in those relations where his distinguishing traits manifest themselves most strongly. 
with the grandeur of his figure in history with his genius and his achievements as the model statesman and chief magistrate all men are now familiar but there yet remain to be sketched many phases of his inner life many of the incidents related in these sketches came to my knowledge through my long continued association with him both in his private and public life therefore if the ego shall seem at times pushed forward to undue prominence it will be because of its convenience or rather necessity certainly not from any motive of self-adulation my personal acquaintance with mr lincoln dates back to the autumn of eighteen forty seven in that year attracted by glowing accounts of material growth and progress in that part of the west i left my home in what was then berkeley county virginia and settled at danville vermilion county illinois that county and sangamon including springfield the new capital of the state were embraced in the eighth judicial circuit which at that early day consisted of fourteen counties it was then the custom of lawyers like their brethren of england to ride the circuit by that circumstance the people came in contact with all the lawyers in the circuit and were enabled to note their distinguishing traits i soon learned that the man most celebrated even in those pioneer days for oddity originality wit ability and eloquence in that region of the state was abraham lincoln my great curiosity to see him was gratified soon after i took up my residence at danville i was introduced to mr lincoln by the hon john t stewart for some years his partner at springfield after a comical survey of my fashionable toggery my swallow-tail coat white neckcloth and ruffled shirt an astonishing outfit for a young limb of the law in that settlement mr lincoln said and so you are a cousin of our friend john j brown he told me you were coming going to try your hand at the law are you i should know at a glance that you were a virginian but i don't think you would succeed at splitting rails that was my occupation at your age and i don't think i have taken as much pleasure in anything else from that day to this i assured him perhaps as a sort of defense against the eloquent condemnation implied in my fashionable claw-hammer that i had done a deal of hard manual labor in my time much amused at this solemn declaration mr lincoln said oh yes you virginians shed barrels of perspiration while standing off at a distance and superintending the work your slaves do for you it is different with us here it is every fellow for himself or he doesn't get there mr lincoln soon learned however that my detestation of slave labor was quite as pronounced as his own and from that hour we were friends until the day of his death it was my pleasure and good fortune to retain his confidence unshaken as he retained my affection unbroken i was his local partner first at danville and afterward at bloomington we rode the circuit together traveling by buggy in the dry seasons and on horseback in bad weather there being no railroads then in that part of the state mr lincoln had defeated that redoubtable champion of pioneer methodism the rev peter cartwright in the last race for congress 
Cartwright was an oddity in his way, quite as original as Lincoln himself. He was a foeman, worthy of Spartan steel, and Mr. Lincoln's fame was greatly enhanced by his victory over the famous preacher. Whenever it was known that Lincoln was to make a speech or argue a case, there was a general rush and a crowded house. It mattered little what subject he was discussing, Lincoln was subject enough for the people. It was Lincoln they wanted to hear and see, and his progress round the circuit was marked by a constantly recurring series of ovations. Mr. Lincoln was from the beginning of his circuit riding the light and life of the court. The most trivial circumstance furnished a background for his wit. The following incident, which illustrates his love of a joke, occurred in the early days of our acquaintance. I, being at the time on the infant side of twenty-one, took particular pleasure in athletic sports. One day, when we were attending a circuit court which met at Bloomington, Illinois, I was wrestling near the courthouse with someone who had challenged me to a trial, and in the scuffle made a large rent in the rear of my trousers. Before I had time to make any change, I was called into court to take up a case. The evidence was finished. I, being the prosecuting attorney at the time, got up to address the jury. Having on a somewhat short coat, my misfortune was rather apparent. One of the lawyers, for a joke, started a subscription paper which was passed from one member of the bar to another as they sat by a long table fronting the bench to buy a pair of pantaloons for Lamon. He being, the paper said, a poor but worthy young man. Several put down their names with some ludicrous subscription, and finally the paper was laid by someone in front of Mr. Lincoln, he being engaged in writing at the time. He quietly glanced over the paper, and immediately taking up his pen, wrote after his name, I can contribute nothing to the end in view. Although Mr. Lincoln was my senior by eighteen years, in one important particular I certainly was in a marvelous degree his acknowledged superior. One of the first things I learned after getting fairly under way as a lawyer was to charge well for legal services, a branch of the practice that Mr. Lincoln never could learn. In fact, the lawyers of the circuit often complained that his fees were not at all commensurate with the service rendered. He at length left that branch of the business wholly to me, and to my tender mercy clients were turned over to be slaughtered according to my popular and more advanced ideas of the dignity of our profession. This soon led to serious and shocking embarrassment. Early in our practice a gentleman named Scott placed in my hands a case of some importance. He had a demented sister who possessed property to the amount of $10,000 mostly in cash. A conservator, as he was called, had been appointed to take charge of the estate, and we were employed to resist a motion to remove the conservator. A designing adventurer had become acquainted with the unfortunate girl, and knowing that she had money sought to marry her. Hence the motion. Scott, the brother and conservator, before we entered upon the case, insisted that I should fix the amount of the fee. I told him that it would be $250, adding, however, that he had better wait, it might not give us much trouble, and in that event a less amount would do. 
he agreed at once to pay two hundred and fifty dollars as he expected a hard contest over the motion the case was tried inside of twenty minutes our success was complete scott was satisfied and cheerfully paid over the money to me inside the bar mr lincoln looking on scott then went out and mr lincoln asked what did you charge that man i told him two hundred and fifty dollars said he lamon that is all wrong the service was not worth that sum give him back at least half of it i protested that the fee was fixed in advance that scott was perfectly satisfied and had so expressed himself that may be retorted mr lincoln with a look of distress and of undisguised displeasure but i am not satisfied this is positively wrong go call him back and return half the money at least or i will not receive one cent of it for my share i did go and scott was astonished when i handed back half the fee this conversation had attracted the attention of the lawyers and the court judge david davis then on our circuit bench called mr lincoln to him the judge never could whisper but in this instance he probably did his best at all events in attempting to whisper to mr lincoln he trumpeted his rebuke in about these words and in rasping tones that could be heard all over the courtroom lincoln i have been watching you and lemon you are impoverishing this bar by your picayune charges of fees and the lawyers have reason to complain of you you are now almost as poor as lazarus and if you don't make people pay you more for your services you will die as poor as job's turkey judge o l davis the leading lawyer in that part of the state promptly applauded this malediction from the bench but mr lincoln was immovable that money he said comes out of the pocket of a poor demented girl and i would rather starve than swindle her in this manner that evening the lawyers got together and tried mr lincoln before a moot tribunal called the augmentorial court he was found guilty and fined for his awful crime against the pockets of his brethren of the bar the fine he paid with great humor and then kept the crowd of lawyers in uproarious laughter until after midnight he persisted in his revolt however declaring that with his consent his firm should never during its life or after its dissolution deserve the reputation enjoyed by those shining lights of the profession catch em and cheat em in these early days mr lincoln was once employed in a case against a railroad company in illinois the case was concluded in his favor except as to the pronouncement of judgment before this was done he rose and stated that his opponents had not proved all that was justly due to them in offset and proceeded to state briefly that justice required that an allowance should be made against his client for a certain amount the court at once acquiesced in his statement and immediately proceeded to pronounce judgment in accordance therewith he was ever ready to sink his selfish love of victory as well as his partiality for his client's favor and interest for the sake of exact justice in many of the courts on the circuit mr lincoln would be engaged on one side or the other of every case on the docket and yet owing to his low charges and the large amount of professional work which he did for nothing 
At the time he left Springfield for Washington to take the oath of office as President of the United States, he was not worth more than $7,000. His property, consisting of the house in which he had lived, and eighty acres of land on the opposite side of the river from Omaha, Nebraska. This land he had entered with his bounty land warrant obtained for services in the Black Hawk War. Mr. Lincoln was always simple in his habits and tastes. He was economical in everything, and his wants were few. He was a good liver, and his family, though not extravagant, were much given to entertainments and saw and enjoyed many ways of spending money not observable by him. After all his inexpensive habits and a long life of successful law practice, he was reduced to the necessity of borrowing money to defray expenses for the first months of his residence at the White House. This money he repaid after receiving his salary as president for the first quarter. A few months after meeting Mr. Lincoln, I attended an entertainment given at his residence in Springfield. After introducing me to Mrs. Lincoln, he left us in conversation. I remarked to her that her husband was a great favorite in the eastern part of the state, where I had been stopping. Yes, she replied, he is a great favorite everywhere. He is to be President of the United States some day. If I had not thought so, I never would have married him for you can see he is not pretty. But look at him. Doesn't he look as if he would make a magnificent president? Magnificent somewhat staggered me. But there was, without appearing ungallant, but one reply to make to this pointed question. I made it, but did so under a mental protest, for I am free to admit that he did not look promising for that office. On the contrary, to me he looked about as unpromising a candidate as I could well imagine the American people were ever likely to put forward. At that time I felt convinced that Mrs. Lincoln was running Abraham beyond his proper distance in that race. I did not thoroughly know the man then. Afterward I never saw the time when I was not willing to apologize for my misguided secret protest. Mrs. Lincoln, from that day to the day of his inauguration, never wavered in her faith that her hopes in this respect would be realized. In 1858, when Mr. Lincoln and Judge Douglas were candidates for the United States Senate and were making their celebrated campaign in Illinois, General McClellan was superintendent of the Illinois Central Railroad and favored the election of Judge Douglas. At all points on the road where meetings between the two great politicians were held, either a special train or a special car was furnished to Judge Douglas. But Mr. Lincoln, when he failed to get transportation on the regular trains in time to meet his appointments, was reduced to the necessity of going as freight. There being orders from headquarters to permit no passenger to travel on freight trains, Mr. Lincoln's persuasive powers were often brought into requisition. The favor was granted or refused, according to the politics of the conductor. On one occasion, in going to meet an appointment in the southern part of the state, that section of Illinois called Egypt, Mr. Lincoln and I, with other friends, were traveling in the caboose of a freight train, when we were switched off the main track to allow a special train to pass in which Mr. Lincoln's more aristocratic rival was being conveyed. 
the passing train was decorated with banners and flags and carried a band of music which was playing hail to the chief as the train whistled past mr lincoln broke out in a fit of laughter and said boys the gentleman in that car evidently smelt no royalty in our carriage on arriving at the point where these two political gladiators were to test their strength there was the same contrast between their respective receptions the judge was met at the station by the distinguished democratic citizens of the place who constituted almost the whole population and was marched to the camping ground to the sound of music shouts from the populace and under floating banners borne by his enthusiastic admirers mr lincoln was escorted by a few republican politicians no enthusiasm was displayed no music greeted his ears nor in fact any other sound except the warble of the bullfrogs in a neighboring swamp the signs and prospects for mr lincoln's election by the support of the people looked gloomy indeed judge douglas spoke first and so great was the enthusiasm excited by his speech that mr lincoln's friends became apprehensive of trouble when spoken to on the subject he said i am not going to be terrified by an excited populace and hindered from speaking my honest sentiments upon this infernal subject of human slavery he rose took off his hat and stood before that audience for a considerable space of time in a seemingly reflective mood looking over the vast throng of people as if making a preliminary survey of their tendencies he then bowed and commenced by saying my fellow citizens i learn that my friend judge douglas said in a public speech that i while in congress had voted against the appropriation for supplies to the mexican soldiers during the late war this fellow citizens is a perversion of the facts it is true that i was opposed to the policy of the administration in declaring war against mexico but when war was declared i never failed to vote for the support of any proposition looking to the comfort of our poor fellows who were maintaining the dignity of our flag in a war that i thought unnecessary and unjust he gradually became more and more excited his voice thrilled and his whole frame shook i was at the time sitting on the stand beside hon o b ficklin who had served in congress with mr lincoln in eighteen forty seven mr lincoln reached back and took ficklin by the coat collar back of his neck and in no gentle manner lifted him from his seat as if he had been a kitten and said fellow citizens here is ficklin who was at that time in congress with me and he knows it is a lie he shook ficklin until his teeth chattered fearing that he would shake ficklin's head off i grasped mr lincoln's hand and broke his grip mr ficklin sat down and lincoln continued his address after the speaking was over mr ficklin who had been opposed to lincoln in politics but was on terms of warm personal friendship with him turned to him and said lincoln you nearly shook all the democracy out of me today." mr lincoln replied 
that reminds me of what paul said to agrippa which in language and substance i will formulate as follows i would to god that such democracy as you folks here in egypt have were not only almost but altogether shaken out of not only you but all that heard me this day and that you would all join in assisting in shaking off the shackles of the bondmen by all legitimate means so that this country may be made free as the good lord intended it ficklin continued lincoln i remember of reading somewhere in the same book from which you get your agrippa story that paul whom you seem to desire to personate admonished all servants slaves to be obedient to them that are their masters according to the flesh in fear and trembling it would seem that neither our savior nor paul saw the inquiry of slavery as you and your party do but you must not think that where you fail by argument to convince an old friend like myself and win him over to your heterodox abolition opinions you are justified in resorting to violence such as you practiced on me today. why i never had such a shaking up in the whole course of my life recollect that that good old book that you quote from somewhere says in effect this woe be unto him who goeth to egypt for help for he shall fall the whole pen shall fall and they shall all fall together the next thing we know lincoln you and your party will be advocating a war to kill all of us pro-slavery people off no said lincoln i will never advocate such an extremity but it will be well for you folks if you don't force such a necessity on the country lincoln then apologized for his rudeness in jostling the muscular democracy of his friend and they separated each going his own way little thinking then that what they had just said in badinage would be so soon realized in such terrible consequences to the country the following letter shows lincoln's view of the political situation at that time springfield june eleventh eighteen fifty eight w h lamon esq my dear sir yours of the ninth written at joliet is just received two or three days ago i learned that mclean had appointed delegates in favor of lovejoy and thenceforward i have considered his renomination a fixed fact my opinion if my opinion is of any consequence in this case in which it is no business of mine to interfere remains unchanged that running an independent candidate against lovejoy will not do that it will result in nothing but disaster all round in the first place whoever so runs will be beaten and will be spotted for life in the second place while the race is in progress he will be under the strongest temptation to trade with the democrats and to favor the election of certain of their friends to the legislature thirdly i shall be held responsible for it and republican members of the legislature who are partial to lovejoy will for that purpose oppose us and lastly it will in the end lose us the district altogether there is no safe way but a convention and if in that convention upon a common platform which all are willing to stand upon 
one who has been known as an abolitionist but who is now occupying none but common ground can get the majority of the votes to which all look for an election there is no safe way but to submit as to the inclination of some republicans to favor douglas that is one of the chances i have to run and which i intend to run with patience i write in the courtroom court has opened and i must close yours as ever signed a lincoln during this senatorial campaign in eighteen fifty eight hon james g blaine predicted in a letter which was extensively published that douglas would beat lincoln for the united states senate but that lincoln would beat douglas for president in eighteen sixty mr lincoln cut out the paragraph of the letter containing this prediction and placed it in his pocket-book where i have no doubt it was found after his death for only a very short time before that event i saw it in his possession after mr lincoln's election he was sorely beset by rival claimants for the spoils of office in his own state and distracted by jealousies among his own party adherents the state was divided so far as the republican party was concerned into three cliques or factions the chicago faction was headed by norman b judd and ebenezer peck the bloomington faction by judge david davis leonard sweat and others and that of springfield by j k dubois o m hatch william butler and others and however anxious mr lincoln might be to honor his state by a cabinet appointment he was powerless to do so without incurring the hostility of the factions from which he could not make a selection harmony was however in a large measure preserved among the republican politicians by sending judd as minister to prussia and by anticipating a place on the supreme bench for judge davis sweat wanted nothing and middle illinois was satisfied springfield controlled the lion's share of state patronage and satisfaction was given all round as far as circumstances would allow between the time of mr lincoln's election and the eleventh of february eighteen sixty one he spent his time in a room in the state house which was assigned to him as an office young mr nicolay a very clever and competent clerk was lent to him by the secretary of state to do his writing during this time he was overrun with visitors from all quarters of the country some to assist in forming his cabinet some to direct how patronage should be distributed others to beg for or demand personal advancement so painstaking was he that every one of the many thousand letters which poured in upon him was read and promptly answered the burden of the new and overwhelming labor came near prostrating him with serious illness some days before his departure for washington he wrote to me at bloomington that he desired to see me at once i went to springfield and mr lincoln said to me hill on the eleventh i go to washington and i want you to go along with me our friends have already asked me to send you as consul to paris you know i would cheerfully give you anything for which our friends may ask or which you may desire but it looks as if we might have war in that case i want you with me in fact i must have you 
so get yourself ready and come along it will be handy to have you around if there is to be a fight i want you to help me to do my share of it as you have done in times past you must go and go to stay end of chapter one early acquaintance read by john greenman